Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Well, this morning, uh, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak into your lives another time. Preaching is a significant part of my job, uh, the major part, I would say, of my life's work. But it is also uh, very much a privilege to me. Uh, it, it is my heart's delight on Sundays to get the chance to stand up here and speak to you. And I'm honored that you allow me each week to, to, be, to try to affect the way that you think about and approach living for God in this world. From time to time, it, uh, you, you've, you've spoken to me about how the Lord spoke to you through something that I said. That still just amazes me. Because, like you, I'm a human being with faults and weaknesses. Uh, I get a little bit afraid at times to come up here and speak about things because they're things that are so challenging to me yet that I have not yet succeeded in the challenge. And that you let an imperfect person come and dare to try to teach you the ways of the Lord. Um, It's a humbling thing for me. And I want to thank you for letting me be your pastor. Since January, we together have been studying family issues. And um, we've given a lot of time to it. And I'm not done yet. And quite frankly, it's going to be real close to Easter before we wrap up this series. And I want to tell you why. The very most important message that the Church of Jesus Christ has, the message that's been entrusted to us, is the message of salvation. It means that it's possible for broken, sinful human beings with all of their faults and weaknesses and failures to be reunited to the God who made us in such a way that we are forgiven of all the junk from our past and we are transformed from the inside out. Each one of us is in a different stage of that transformation. And uh, we have decided that since we're going to do this together, we're going to give one another a lot of grace so that you don't have to be at the same point on the journey as I am to receive my goodwill, my prayers, and my love. We're all at different places on this journey, and uh, I'm finding this to be a very good place to do the journey. But next to that message of salvation, where we are saved from the wreckage of our own lives. I think the very most important thing that I could teach you about from week to week is the business of building a family life that God can bless and then use to make the message of his love believable to the world around us. Listen, if we can't do family well, we lose our credibility in terms of this salvation message. And so it becomes very important for us to take seriously what God teaches in his word about how to be married and how to raise children. I've called these two messages, the the one that I spoke last week and and the one that I'm going to teach today, premeditated parenting. We most often use the word premeditated to describe a crime that has been carefully planned ahead of time, and there are certainly some criminal aspects to the business of parenting. My children are quite sure that I am guilty of torture. Uh, Too many parents, though, I think, 
have not been deliberate about the purposes, goals, and methods of parenting and have taken kind of a hands-off approach. They've assumed that no matter what they did or didn't do, it was all going to work out in the end. Yeah, how's that going thus far, America? Some other parents have uh, taken a hands-off approach because they're kind of fatalistic, and they say, well, the kids are going to do whatever they want to do anyway, so I'll just let them figure it out for themselves. I'm of the opinion that the fabric of our culture right now is in many ways a very direct result of parents who have said, hands off. Rather than being deliberate about the way that we would go about this, rather than than looking at goals and and trying to learn some deliberate uh, strategies that give us a high probability of achieving those goals in parenting, we've just kind of winged it. Premeditated parenting, I think, is a better way to approach it, and that's why I want to talk to you about it. That's why I spoke about it last week and will again today. As the people of God, we've been given a very rich tradition of experience and wisdom. We've been given direct revelation from heaven itself, and so I believe that we can do better than we have been. And that's why we have this up on the screen every single week. And it becomes this confession of our faith. And I would like for you to say it with me like you mean it. My family's future can be better than its past. If and only if we'll humble ourselves to the place that we can learn from God's word some different ways of thinking about our faith and different ways of practicing it as it comes to parenting. Some of parenting is always going to feel like guesswork, but in most matters, I believe that we can take a considered approach. We can carry out that approach in our daily actions, and we can have good odds of reaching our parenting goals. Last week, we talked about some of those purposes or goals to help our children connect with the God who gives them life and and wants them to spend all of this life and all of eternity closely connected to him. And by engaging in premeditated parenting, I think we have a great shot at success in those terms with our kids. And one of the things that will be necessary uh, all along the way, which also can be one of the greatest sources of joy in our lives, is to have a healthy, lasting relationship with each of our children. And as soon as I say that, I know a handful of you have spoken to me about the greatest pain in your life. It's that your grown children will not have anything to do with you. Listen, parents, if you have adult children who have come to a parting of the ways with you, two things. Number one, we care. We love you, and we are sorry for this great pain in your life. Number two, we're going to pray for you. And number three, the story is not yet over. Okay? The Lord who hears the cries of a mom and dad is eager to answer on their behalf. And he is more than willing to get involved in your son or daughter's life to soften their hearts. So the rest of us will together say to you, wait on the Lord, and we'll pray with you, okay? If we're going to raise children that are going to become champions for God, people who are really going to take this faith of ours and not just hang on to it for another generation, but actually use it for great impact in the world around us, it will be our responsibility, parents, to work toward having a healthy, lasting relationship with each of our children. So that's really what I want to talk about today. From studying the Bible, from reading the wisdom of some Christian parenting experts, 
uh, gleaning from my parents' example, they did, they did some awfully good things, in my opinion. And now working from 16 years of my own experience, I want to share with you what I think is a recipe for a lasting relationship with your kids. Ingredient number one is this, whole lot of love. Okay, It's going to take a whole lot of love. And as soon as I say that, there's this collective, well, of course, rolling around in all of the craniums in the room. People are supposed to love their kids. Thanks, Pastor Cliff. Hadn't figured that one out yet. Captain Obvious saves the day, right? Well, I, I get it that that statement can seem so mundane and obvious as to not even be worth saying, but I could not disagree with you more. I want to reference again the, the biblical definition of love. And if you haven't been with us before, it's going to be a big mouthful. But let me just say this. If you take all of the Old Testament Hebrew words for love and all of the New Testament Greek words for love, and you strip away all the unnecessary excess stuff and you get down to the root of those words, every single word for love in both those languages, in both of those testaments that were written over the course of about 1,500 years, every one of those words has at its root the, this meaning to prefer. To love means to prefer someone. Jesus spoke to the issue of love. He said, love your neighbor as yourself, or as much as you love yourself, and that's a good place to start. Far be it for me to say that Jesus didn't didn't take it far enough. I just want to take his idea and work with it. Jesus said, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. You're thinking, even Stephen, I might be able to get there. Okay. But here's the deal, is that sooner or later, preference comes down to who do I prefer, me or you? And when it comes down to me or you, to prefer, to love, means I choose you and your well-being, even if I have to sacrifice to make it happen. Okay? So that's where this definition comes from, and um, let's put it on the screen, and I'd like for you to read it with me out loud. Some of you I know have memorized it and are trying to make this really the way that you live your life, but read it with me if you would. Love is a demonstrated preference for the well-being of others, over and above myself, even at great personal expense, by the help of the Holy Spirit, by the help of the Holy Spirit. That's very important. That last, last line, by the help of the Holy Spirit, very important, because here's what we found out. Yeah, of course, I know I'm supposed to do what you're in, in your best interest, even when it costs me a little bit. The problem is I don't want to. <laughs> I'm seriously under-motivated on some days to do what's in your best interest when it costs me. And that's why as Christians we say, you are going to have to rely on God. But the good news is he's the kind of God you can rely on. He will push you past yourself the day that you ask him to. He will help you to serve the well-being of others. Parents, the root meaning of all of the the Bible's words for love is is preference. And that means that to love someone is to prefer their well-being over our own when it comes right down to it. If, if, if any two situation, any situation can work out to benefit us mutually, fantastic. But if it's time to choose who's going to benefit from our actions and who might have to suffer loss or inconvenience or frustration, premeditated parenting means that we make a principled decision that we will always put the well-being of our children before our own pleasure when it comes to our every parenting decision. Here's what I want to ask this morning. If you are a foster or adopt family, would you please stand? Stand right where you are. Foster or adopt families, stand. I want you to take a look at this con- uh, at, at the 
representation in our congregation. There's, there's some more right up there in the, in the loft today. Do you know what this means? This is a collection of people who said, we will welcome children into our home at great expense. And it is almost always because those children have been put in a situation where mom and dad preferred their own well-being over the children. But the foster and adopt families said, we're going to make sure that this thing gets done right. So we will prefer the well-being of children over ourselves. Whatever else may go right or wrong in this church family, I'm going to tell you this, the living examples of love, real biblical God kind of love, that are modeled before us by our foster and adopt families are going to keep us on the right track and are going to consistently show us the way to love one another in our homes. And so I just want to say a thank you to our foster and adopt families. So parenting, parental love means that we put the kids' well-being first, uh, yeah, even before our preferences. Um, let's flesh it out in real-world terms. We've, we've all made the decision to put off buying a new pair of shoes because the kids needed a new pair of shoes, and that is a step in the right direction. That one probably comes pretty naturally to almost all of us. But I want to look at a few other real-world situations, and I'm really going to intentionally push some buttons today. Okay? Now listen, I promise, you can believe me or not, but I promise I'm not aiming at any one person or group of people in particular. I'm just going to address some things that are of pastoral concern that I see in the lives of many, many people. I'm going to push the buttons today and just ask this one thing. Even if you are mad at me, would you please not be mad at God's Holy Spirit and get defensive toward him? Instead, Would you just say, Lord, if you want to talk to me about this, I'll listen. It's late in the evening. You've had a long day at work. You're exhausted. You've come home, taking care of a few of the responsibilities there, and finally you're just enjoying an hour in front of the TV or a computer or in a book, just, you know, kind of winding it down before you turn in. Your kids are in the next room. You overhear their conversation or an argument or, or TV content that is inappropriate. The problem is you're so stinking tired, you just do not want to deal with it. Hand of testimony, people, help me out here. Okay, all right. What do you do? Parental love means that the kid's well-being comes before our own comfort and peace of mind. It means you suck up the energy You get up, you address the situation, you teach your kids one more time what is right and holy and good. Even if they're not going to listen, it takes a whole lot of love to put your own preferences second and your kids' well-being first when you're exhausted. We have many hard, hard hard-working parents in our congregation, and I'm speaking from experience on this one, okay? How about this? You're an adult, You've matured to the place where you think you've earned a right to some adult freedoms. And you're not going to let any of those things spin out of control in your life. But you've earned the right to enjoy some adult freedoms. 
What am I talking about? I'm talking about some things that have traditionally in our culture been called vices. Things like uh, the consumption of alcohol or tobacco or um, some pastimes like gambling, perhaps. Now listen, you've got to hear me closely here. This is not Pastor Cliff preaching thou shalt not, waving his bony, judgmental finger at you. I'm not trying to turn back time. I'm not trying to reinstitute some old religious rules. I'm not interested in doing either of those things. But mature Christian love always asks the question, what is in the best interest of the other people around me? And in the, say, in, in, the, in the instance of parenting, we're always asking the question, what is in the best interest of the children? Question, are you free to engage in those adult freedoms or others like them as an adult? Yes, you are. But parental love considers the example that we set before our children and what will be best for them in that arena, knowing their weaknesses, knowing that they are all wired a little bit differently than we are. It might be time for parents in this congregation to show a whole lot of love, a whole lot of preference for the well-being of our kids, who might get lost in the freedoms that we can practice with self-control. It takes a whole lot of love to lay down some freedoms and some things that we enjoy in order to point our children in the direction of freedom from addictions. But hello, America, it's time. I heard your amens. You struggle with making decisions that way? It's a whole new way of thinking because as young adults with no kids, we can often get by with asking, what's best for me? And then just pursue that. But when we become parents, there's another question. There must be a marked change in our priorities. Love says, I'm second, you're first, kids. Uh, Two years before we left Whitefish and moved here, we had uh, our Christmas open house one of the highlights of the year for my family and me. And there was this fellow in our church there who was about six foot five, big, tall Canadian. And he came in with this gift that was literally this long, wrapped, and hands it to us. We've been preaching about these very things for some time. And uh, this man brought me this gift. So we unwrapped it. There were about 90 people in my house that night. It was a little crowded. He unwrapped it, and he's a craftsman, and he had gone to his wood shop. He made this beautiful sign that I forgot to bring this morning, and it said, F-A-M-I-L-Y, family. And underneath it, it said, get this, forget about me. I love you. I'll put your needs first. I'll be confident that God is going to meet my needs. If there's some empty spot, he'll fill it. But I'll always consider what is in your best interest. So I'll forget about me because I love you. In order to build a relationship that lasts, we parents are going to have to deliberately ask one question repeatedly, what's in the kid's best interest? When we determine what that is, even if it costs us greatly, love says we choose that. If you find 
a real struggle on your hands there, battling your own heart within you. Listen, you really can ask for and receive God's help in this matter. Get this, in one of the angel appearances in the first chapter of Luke's version of the Jesus story, the angel is describing to um, some expectant parents the work of that huge figure in history, John the Baptist, who was going to team up with Jesus to establish God's kingdom on earth for real. And the angel described part of that preparation work for the coming of the kingdom of God as turning the hearts of the fathers toward the children. He said, you'll be able to tell when the Messiah's work here is being accomplished because the hearts of parents will always be turned toward their children. Not just, ah, they won a trophy, much as we love to celebrate those things. But what is in the best interest of the kids, no matter what it costs me? That was the conversation we had this morning, Lisa, wasn't it? Yeah. You need God to help you place your children's well-being above your own convenience, your own enjoyment, your own recreation. I promise he'll do it if you ask. Ingredient number two is much affection. Love is one thing, affection is another. Do you know the difference? It's important to know the difference and that you practice both. While love is preferring the well-being of another, affection is the signs of that love. I think the definition of love builds the case for kids needing that. It's also the case, however, that our children have a continual need for affection from their parents. So just take your junior hires, walk them to the front door of the school, kiss them right before they go in. They love it. Not what I'm talking about, of course. You've read dozens of sad stories and funny jokes about people who said, I told you I loved you once. If that ever changes, I'll let you know. And what makes the joke funny and the story sad is that the person who was once told of that love has somehow forgotten it or has seen too many indications of the opposite so they don't any longer feel loved and accepted. If someone says, my parents don't love me, or my parents didn't love me, it may or may not be true, but it almost certainly is true that they were not shown affection. The signs of love were missing. Affection is the actions that massage true love into the heart and mind, and it puts glue on the parent-child relationship and helps them last. Listen, my, my uh, grandfather was 83 years old the first time he told my dad, I love you. Something changed in my dad's life that day. My dad, who was a, a rock, was a, was a balling baby that day because he got something he'd hoped for his entire life. His dad had provided well for the family. His dad had never been affectionate. And the day that he said, I love you, fundamentally changed their relationship. Here's the action point. Hugs, kisses, holding hands, sitting on laps, pats on the back, kind words, all those things speak volumes. Does the Bible give us any commands on the subject, thou shalt be affectionate? No. But it assumes that these things will be in place in our home life. I did a quick survey of just the book of Genesis. I found five occurrences of kisses between parents and children in just the first book of the Bible. Your kids need it too. And if you don't, well, too bad. 
Because your kids do, and this is about putting the kids' needs first. Oh, that's awkward. Well, only the first, you know, like five times. After that, it's the thing you do. Put the kids' well-being first, and that's love and signs of love. Okay? Ingredient number three is much restraint. It's going to take a whole lot of love. It's going to take much affection. It's also going to take much restraint. And it means showing self-control when we're angry. It means restraining our kids as well from bad company and behavior. If you want a lasting relationship with your children, it's extremely important, I think, that you get this point. Show restraint in venting your anger and in punishing bad behavior. Failure to restrain your own anger will likely cause you to fail in the restraint on the punishment department as well. I think it's important to tell you that this area has been the single greatest struggle in my life. Since I've been your pastor, I think I've grown a lot in this department. And I want to give all of the glory to God for that. Because I had for plenty of years shown that I was not very capable of those things. Before preaching this point, I thought it was necessary to go to my kids and ask their approval. Ask if I ought to speak about these things in light of how I have lived. Things have gone well in that department over the last three years, but my performance has not been perfect. And all the years prior to that were far less stellar. But my children have shown me grace, and they've allowed me to earn their trust, and hopefully they are learning from my growth in this area that God can change a man if you'll invite him to. If you struggle with the business of venting anger toward your kids, God will help you change too. It'll require a lot of prayer, repeated confession, requests for forgiveness, And it will require the end of making excuses for your bad behavior. But in the space where rage once left ugly wounds, health and love and peace can grow. I know because it's happening in my home. With God's help, it really is possible. If you need some help in this area, I do know how to pray about it. So come see me. I'd love to. Speaking of restraint, you will also need to restrain your children from inappropriate displays of anger, from flagrant sin, and from bad company. Listen to these words from God recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 13. They were spoken about a parent who knew his children were misbehaving and did nothing about it. Those children grew up and became monsters who used power abusively against vulnerable people. And here's what God said. I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. Years ago, I had a woman call me. She said, uh, I need you to speak with my son. I said, what about? She said, well, he was caught with pornography in his locker at school. I said, oh. Okay. I wanted to make sure I was, you know, playing from the same sheet of music with the parents. I said, well, um, let's make an appointment um, for me to talk with him. But why don't you tell me what you and your husband said to him first? She goes, oh, well, we didn't talk to him. We want you to. 
I have watched the predictable wreckage pile up in that young man's life. Because it wasn't the only time that they said, we're not going to restrain him. We're not going to correct him. We're expecting other people to do that. They knew about the sin in his life. They did not attempt to restrain it. And the result is, well, kids scattered all over, heartache, addictions. He's a mess today. And there's a second generation of hurt that's following him. Parents, we have got to, by the power of the Spirit, practice self-restraint. And we must also say no to our children when no is the best thing you can say to your kids. Win their friendship later. Say no when you need to say no. Ingredient number four, it's going to take enough discipline. And discipline is both guidance and correction. It's not all punishment. It's guidance and correction. I'm not going to belabor this point, but um, I'll let you hear from God's Word directly on the business of discipline. Suffice it to say this, discipline equals guidance plus correction. Show them the way to go, and if they're not going that way, bump them back that direction. Last week, we talked about ways to guide our kids. If you missed it, you can listen to the podcast But it took me some time to wade through what the Bible has to say about guiding and correcting. And I've chosen five passages that I just want to read to you. The first one is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Read like this. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your heart, your house and on your gates. It clearly gives us the responsibility to guide children, talk to them about the ways of the Lord. Do not assume that Sunday school gets the job done. Do not assume that youth ministry gets the job done. Do not assume that they can read between the lines. Read the lines to the kids. Talk about the ways of the Lord. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen: The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. All right, just need to say it. I'm not telling you to beat your kids, okay? Um, Although Noah Purcell says to me often, the beat kids are the best kids. Uh, Yeah, yeah, not always. Um, I'm I'm just not going to tell you to do that, but I'm going to tell you that uh, you parents need to work out a plan for guiding and for appropriately punishing your children. Just know this, that a child left to himself will not find the right way They'll end up bringing shame on your family. Proverbs 29, 17, two verses later, says, Discipline your son, and he'll give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Could I see just the hand of testimony from some parents whose adult kids have, um, have somehow eventually found the way? And you can say, hey, you who are working hard raising young kids, there's rest coming. Can I see the hand? Look at them. Look around. There's some kids who get it right. And after all those years of hard work and all the praying and all the struggle, there can come a point where you go, ah. Yeah, so don't give up now. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
Colossians 3.21. Again, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This, I, I said this to you one time before. I won't, I won't give the long version of the story, but my dad was, and I had this great relationship, but when other adult men were around, he was hard on me. One day we were getting ready to go fishing, and he was just, Mm, mm, again and again. And my dad's buddy, John, said, hey, Cecil, let up on the kid. He's a good boy. Let up. Um, Dad's, only if you need to hear it today, hey, let up just a little bit, okay? I found out that I used too heavy a hand, and um, I'm a much better dad to a 10-year-old Luke than I was to a 10-year-old Noah. I found out over time that you don't have to correct every little thing that's wrong, okay? Just the ones that would be damaging. Dad, you might need to let up just a little bit. Don't beat your kids. Uh, If you're going to use corporal punishment, um, read about how to administer that properly. Little else you do as a parent has the power to embitter your children than excessively harsh physical punishment. So I'm just going to offer you a handful of hints. Number one, use it sparingly. Number two, use it only in the case of defiance of authority, not for childlike mess-ups. Number three, wait until you are no longer angry so that it can't be confused with you just using superior force to get your way and to get vengeance against your kids. And if waiting means waiting too long for corporal punishment to be appropriate anymore, so be it. Find another way to guide your kids, but don't don't go to the woodshed when you are angry. Finally, just think about how rough God's ever been with you and let that inform your actions. You don't have to engage in every argument. You don't have to win every argument, parents. Doing so will frustrate your kids to the point of bitterness. I've probably come very close to failure in this department too, come to think of it. Ingredient number five, grant them an identity. What we do flows from who we are or who we think we are. So so parents, understand what a huge opportunity you have to give great and lasting shape to who your children become. Tell them who they are becoming. Speak about their character and their destiny. Give shape to how they think about themselves. Listen, your kids are not likely to form a higher opinion of themselves than you seem to have of them. They'll rise no higher than you think they will. Proverbs 23.7 is speaking specifically about a selfish person, but its principle has a wider application. It's this, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Parents, you have great power to launch your children confidently into godly, responsible adulthood or to squash them all of their young lives to the place that they think of themselves as small and powerless or you can neglect them and cause them to think they are of no significance whatsoever. Thinking about how you will speak to your kids will yield some strategic moments when you'll be able to speak into your lives, into their lives, what you see and admire in them those conversations will shape your children into winners. Ingredient number six, last one is this, build a legacy. Listen, I'm going to go on and on about this at a later date. But your family has a purpose beyond the moment. 
What do you want it to be? No two generations will have a greater influence on your family's legacy going forward than this one and the next one. You and your children are going to form the foundation for what your family does to and in this world for years to come. So shape your kids' understanding of your family's preferred future a little bit each day. What might God do with your family if you intentionally gave it to him for his use in changing the world? Jonathan Edwards is a man of significant influence in America. He was a Puritan preacher born in 1703. He lived just 55 years. You probably read some of his stuff in a high school American literature class. No preacher has more shaped America than that man. Jonathan Edwards was a man, he and his wife, who decided that their family was going to have a legacy. Your heritage is what came before you and was handed to you, but it pivots at you, and you determine what the legacy will be, what it is that you will pass on to generations to come. Jonathan Edwards and his wife decided that certain things were very important to them, and they would emphasize them, and they would teach their kids, these are the Edwards family values, and it is your job to use them to shape the world. He died in 1758. In 1900, somebody took a look at the descending family tree. An investigation was made. I'm just going to read this. An investigation was made of 1,394 known descendants of Jonathan Edwards, of which 13 became college presidents, 65 college professors, three United States senators, 30 judges, 100 lawyers, 60 physicians, 75 army and navy officers, 100 preachers and missionaries, 60 authors of prominence, one a vice president of the United States, 80 became public officials in other capacities, 295 college graduates, among whom were governors of states and ministers to foreign countries. What could your family become if you were to give thought not just to the immediate behaviors of your kids, but to shaping their identity and intentionally enlisting them in the shaping of your family's legacy? Psalm 127, 3 through 5 say, children, uh, verse 3, children are a heritage from the Lord. God's given you something, but it pivots at you and becomes a legacy. What kind of children are you going to sow into this world? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, listen, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's my point. God already has a plan for your family. God has good works that he's prepared beforehand for you and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren to do. Mr. and Mrs. Jonathan Edwards decided that they wanted to actively participate, partner with God in shaping this country, and they have. I've, I've told you before, I hope to do the same. And it's why again and again and again, most nights we pray 
with as many of our kids as will pray with us this prayer. Lord, please grant the Purcells a long-lasting legacy among your people. May it be a legacy of service, moral courage, and of Christian virtue. I've decided I want a million things for my family, but I can only remember to pray three, so I'm going to go with those three. Then I ask them, define the terms. Service is helping people. Moral courage is doing the right thing even when you're afraid or it's inconvenient. Christian virtue is really the heart of the matter. It's not just doing what's right, but loving what's right. If the Lord tarries, and we get another three, four, five generations of Purcells, I think this world's going to be better for it. I'm rolling the dice anyway. I'm betting the world's future on my kids. And I'm going to intentionally shape how they understand themselves and who they become. I want to ask you, would you join me in that? What if we're wrong and it comes to nothing? Well, that's what we have right now. But if the people of this church family would decide from this day forward, our family has a destiny, it has a legacy, and we get to pick what it is. And we then turn our children and grandchildren loose on this world. I remember Jesus said, the gates of hell will not stand a chance. They won't prevail against it. The thing about a kingdom is it's supposed to be passed down and last. And the scriptures teach us that his kingdom is forever and ever. And I say we start living, we start parenting as though we're part of the forever kingdom. And we shape what kind of kingdom it's going to be in this world.